ladies and gentlemen. Uh, Can I please have your attention? Greetings, dear listeners. This is Jonah Goldberg, host of the Remnant Podcast, brought to you by the Dispatch and Dispatch Media. Very excited about today's guest. Um, very excited about his new book. Um, very excited to be back at the microphone after various uh, travails. And very, very excited not to be talking about the, uh, the, the smooth running of the House of Representatives. So today we have a uh, friend of the podcast, friend of mine, colleague of mine, AEI, um, holder of the DeWitt Wallace Chair at the American Enterprise Institute, um, where he writes about economic policy and writes and edits the AI Ideas blog. Um, and he's the host of the Political Economy podcast. And he's got a Faster Please newsletter on Substack, Substack that everyone should read. But the real news is he's got his book is finally out, which I have blurbed approvingly. Um, uh, the conservative futurists, how to create the sci-fi world we were promised. Jim Pethokoukas, welcome back to The Remnant. Jonah, uh, thank you so much for having me back. Uh, I did not realize this was perhaps the first episode since your cross-country journey. Uh, so I feel extra special to be on. Um, it was not the first, but then I had to leave town again. And so it's all been chaos. Uh, Chris Dyerwalt subbed for me. Ah. And uh, so it's just, it's cats and dogs, as you can imagine. Well, I'm glad you're here either way. Yeah, the, the speakership race is in my, my human heart. So <laughs> uh, what, um, as per tradition, the first question I have for you is, what's your book about? It is about, the easy. Th I think the easy answer is, it's about how to create a future that we would all want to live in. And I hope it is a, at least a partial antidote, antidote or corrective to what I think is a unnecessary and pervasive gloom uh, about what we can do to solve big problems using human ingenuity. And, you know, in the book, I, you know, I you know the classic example of us sort of Having a big problem now because we rejected a solution earlier is uh, nuclear energy. But if I but if I thought this book, if I thought this book was somehow going to, you know, you know, about the past, we were able to enjoy this huge AI breakthrough, which happened last November for about, I don't know, 30 minutes mm -hmm, mm -hmm. before we had, you know, tales of complete job apocalypse to be followed by a real apocalypse when the robots were going to kill us all. And here we have a, a breakthrough in a technology that could really accelerate economic growth, uh, living standards, and you know, solve big problems. And already we had people call, calling for uh, you know, a pause, heavy regulation, nationalization. It's that kind of attitude that I hope the book makes the case against and shows how we can, you know, we don't have to be afraid of technology. It, it's good. It's a tool and we can use that tool to make our lives better. So it's funny, the, the conservative part, which we're going to talk about in a second, mm -hmm. but the, the conservative part about your thesis, regardless of where you come down on political ideology stuff, it seems to me that the, the weird deja vu thing is I think in every single generation since the invention of the wheel, there are people who are saying, whoa, 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 
let's slow literally with the wheel let's slow our roll <laughs> um, we don't know where this can go to um are the luddites of now or the anti-growth people or the the the, the techno pessimists whatever labels we have for them the long-termists which we'll talk about are they qualitatively different today than say the old Paul Ehrlich club for growth crowd. I mean, uh, club of Rome was club of Rome. Yeah. Yeah. The limits of growth crowd. Are they that much different than the 1970s or is it just the stuff we're arguing about that much? You know, the, the, the potential upside for the things we have today is so much greater. So it gives it a different feel. Well, I think I'm amazed uh, at sort of the persistence of the world outlook that we saw um, you know, we don't have to go back to the Luddites, but let's go back to the 70s when people when you had these limits to growth and they were make, and Hollywood's making movies like Soylent Green, you know, of overpopulation and we're going to use up all the earth. Those are not like just 70s attitudes as mm-hmm. we've seen sort of this, you know, finally, maybe a, a, a renaissance finally in nuclear energy. Um, both because of the uh, Russia's invasion of Ukraine and now that some you know, environmentalists are realizing it's, it's going to be very hard <laughs> to like, decarbonize an economy based on solar right. panels and windmills, that this, the exact same arguments are coming out that, um, you know, not only is nuclear power too dangerous, but really it would just enable more capitalist consumption. And, you know, we own and we were already using up, you know, 1.8, you know, Earth's worth of resources and there's only one Earth. And even the population arguments are coming back. So I am sort of and, and you have now they call it the degrowth movement. So those those arguments really haven't changed much but you know but to those kinds of i guess more interesting left-wing arguments you really have sort of the new kind of right-wing version which is focusing a lot on you know that all, all that the economy has not worked you know for working class people like for decades and it's all about and tr- we've had too much trade too much immigration and why can't we go back to 1964 and you know all silicon valley is crazy and they want us in the future to all live in mile high skyscrapers and eat bug paste for dinner like that might be a little more new but certainly <laughs> there's always been kind of this retrograde um you know there there's a quote and it's and the quote is it is rather odd that we see nothing but progress behind us and anticipate nothing but disaster ahead of us. I suppose that view has always been there, but it's certainly bipartisan right now. Yeah, I just I do wonder whether it's I'm, I'm going through I'm struggling with my views about intellectual history and I'm starting to give more weight to psychological stuff than I yeah. used to. And it just feels like if there's pessimism in the human heart, you just grab these arguments off the shelf and it doesn't really matter if you're right or left. It just, it's much more of a, you know, like Virginia Postrel, you know, the future and its enemies. They're just some people who look in the future and say, man, that's going to suck. Let me come up with explanations for why. And they just keep swapping in new ones from generation to generation. Yeah. I think, listen, I think the, uh, the behavioral economists, you know, as I'm sure you know, you know, have highlighted, you know, dozens of weird cognitive quirks that people have. And you can go to Wikipedia and it's a long list, you know, and, and you know, one of them is kind of a, we have an inherent bias uh, toward like liking the status quo. And there's something and we have a bias toward value, you know, feeling, 
you know, losses far more powerfully and emotionally than we feel gains. So to make the case of someone that you need to give up a what you think is a, a comfortable status quo and to tell people that, well, you know, things, you know, are gonna, they're going to be a little crazy, but, you know, but they'll be better in the long run. It, there is an inherent bias you have to work against. Also, I mean, there's a lot of research on how people behave when they've grown up in a period of, of relative economic stagnation. And I don't want to overmake the case that like there's been no improvement in the U.S. economy for 50 years. That is certainly not the case. But compared to what we were expecting heading into the 70s and compared, to, I think, what people continue to expect and what they feel in their own lives I think it has been a period of relative stagnation, particularly since the global financial crisis. And people who grow up, there's a great new study from Harvard on this. People who grow up in that kind of environment tend to be more, uh, you know, they don't believe you can really grow the pie. If there's more growth, all the rich people will take it. They don't believe you can climb the ladder. So the economy that we've had since the financial crisis has not helped. It really, I think, has created an environment more conducive to us sort of embracing that natural bias that kind of resists train and resists, um, that resists change and kind of fears the future. Yeah. I mean, there's a, I mean, I remember my friend, Ron Bailey, who's very much on your page on all this kind of stuff. Uh, I remember 30 years ago, him explaining to me, he's like, look, the person who constantly suspects that the rustling in the bushes is a lion waiting to pounce on them is less likely to be eaten by a lion than the guy who says, oh, it's probably the wind. And even though the guy who says it's probably the wind is probably right far more often, all you have to do is be wrong once and your genes for sort of a more rosy <laughs> outlook don't get passed on. And I think that there's a there's an evolutionary component to this that is very averse. That we are just much better attuned at downside risk um, than we are at pot potential upside. And which is why necessity has to be the mother of invention a lot of the time. Um, because there's no other way to prod people to sort of upset the status quo. Um, anyway, um, what is, I, I, I had not known until I started reading your book, but this in your stuff about, um, philosophical long-termism, which I always thought was a concept that conservatives rightly owned, but it seems to be kind of a becoming a problem. Right. So, uh, I, you know, the, the title conservative futurist, which, you know, you know, ha ha, it's like, an, you know, it's an oxymoron because we all know conservatives are just, you know, mired in tradition and don't want to move por forward. And, you know, we're just, you know, consumed by nostalgia. That might be, you know, sort of the the general, you know, you know, regular person when they hear that hear that phrase. But I think the notion of someone who self-identifies as a conservative, and again, my version of conservatism is something grounded in principles of limited government and free markets and social mobility, um, that, that that to be a conservative like that and care about the future is very natural. I mean, uh, you know, we, 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 we care about you know, our children, what kind of what kind of world our children will grow up in? Will they live in a better world, a world of more opportunity where there's where it's healthier, where, where humanity will have more tools using our God given ingenuity to solve problems? So to me, that's to me, it is a perfectly um, acceptable and normal and understandable and natural combination uh, of outlooks. And. Edmund Burke said, you know, it's a Edmund Burke said, no, we, there's this, you know, you know, linkage between the past, the present and the future. 
So I don't. So so I don't think it's you know it's weird at all. And the notion of long termism, which we which has become like a a thing on the sort of the the center left among people who you know want to you know embrace nuclear energy now uh, to deal with climate change, uh, people who want to focus on you know solving these big existential risks. Uh, great. Uh, I'm glad that is now a thing among some areas of the left. Uh, I hope conservatives can say like we've already been there because the riskiest thing you can do, I think, is let fear prevent you from taking any risks. Then there's mm-hmm. no progress and there's no innovation. And then you end up in a pandemic, you know, uh, you know, having to scramble to create a to create a vaccine. And great, we did it. And it shows the value of being a rich, technologically advanced country. but Listen, we should already have nuclear reactors. You know, climate change should not even be an issue. You know, we should already have these these vaccines. They should have been invented 20 years ago. Uh, I, I don't know if you remember the last time I was out, we talked about uh, a sci-fi show called The Peripheral. Do you, I don't know if you recall that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's a great show. I like that show a lot. Love it. Love it. Love it. And, I, and now I mentioned that in the book and I didn't. It was not in the draft I had before I talked to you. Uh, and uh, it just the part of it, I think, which really resonated because it portrays a future where not everything terrible has gone wrong, but enough things went wrong at the same time. You know, a little pandemic here, a limited nuclear war there, you know, kind of a chaotic that there was this huge die off uh, of 80 percent of the population died. But as William Gibson writes in the book, in the middle of this catastrophe, he writes, science started popping where they figured out AI, they figured out nanotechnology. But it was sort of too late. And that that really struck home with me is that I don't want to be in the too late category. I want to have these tools ready to go now to solve problems now uh, and not as the, uh, the the giant hunk of space ice is hurtling toward the planet. Yeah, I mean, the, the thing that drives me crazy is because, I mean, the long termism, you know, the stuff I was reading up on it, it's very, very reminiscent of the precautionary principle. Right. And it seems like, again, these are these I to me, it's very much like a lot of intellectual arguments. We just come up with new labels and new things to be afraid of, but it's the same friggin' argument when you scratch one or two layers down. It's and the overriding thing that comes through in a lot of that stuff is just there are people who want to be able to plan other people's lives. There are people who want to be able to rationally impose scarcity, their preferred choices on lots and lots of people, and they have to find some scary scenario that justifies it. And um, so I love this thing, uh, from this book I learned about from you, uh, half earth socialism, <laughs> um, where this guy comes up by, comes up with, um, something called the goss plant, which is yes, a play on goss plan. And basically the idea is there's a central government that leaves half the earth to rewild and then basically confiscates everybody's private cars uses the steel for trams and, and monorails or whatever, um, gets rid of, uh, liquidates the suburban real estate market and all these kinds of things. And to me, you will not have a front lawn under this scenario. There are no front lawns or golf courses. So like this gets it to me is, 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 I mean, getting back to the psychology stuff, 
you know, my biggest problem among my biggest problems with Rawls's veil of ignorance is that it, it still subscribes to this sort of progressive view of the state as, as, as something that should do what God would do if God existed. Right. And so Rawls says, how would you define the entire society? If you were behind, if you had, if you had the ability behind some veil of ignorance, it starts with this idea that you can plan and design an entire society and that the knowledge problem doesn't exist. And it comes up in this stuff too. And so like, it seems to me, can you make the case for why? Because there are a lot of these techno future left-wing guys with the long-termism, they want to do good science. They want to advance science, but they want it to be sort of centrally planned. And so what is the problem with sort of centrally planning um, scientific and technological development over the long term. Well, you know, it, it's interesting. You mentioned this book, you know, Half Earth Socialism. And when I was sort of writing this book and I was talking to people, I'm saying, yes, I, you know, I, you know, I want it to be an optimistic vision of the future. But, you know, I'm having trouble finding like a lot of good examples of books, films and TV shows that are optimistic. And they suggested this book. And it, it turned out it was Obama's like book of the year, you know, a few years ago <laughs> uh, called uh, The Ministry for the Future. Uh, written by a guy named Kim, uh, Kim Stanley Robinson. And they said, though this, though this, you need to read this book because it's about uh, solving problems with technology. So I'm like, great. And I read the book. And it was very much like that, the half-Earth socialism book, where it, where it made the case that we need, that, you know, we need, that democracy was never really going to get us there and that we almost needed a, a, a environmental terrorist group to help prod society forward. And there would be this, you know, this UN group called the ministry for the future. They would have kind of a dark ops wings where they would, you know, uh, you know, you know, blow up, you know, coal plants and assassinate CEOs. Uh, so that was sort of the positive, you know, left wing version of this. Um, the book is not about central planning. It is about creating an environment where we have the tools available that we can kind of create the future that we want to live in. An example of sort of the, the opposite would be, you know, uh, you know, certainly China, which, 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 you know, identifies all these key economic sectors and these need to have, uh, these need to have more funding. Uh, but it doesn't seem to be working out very, very well. I think saying that we must have, Everybody must drive an electric car by this year. That is central planning. That is uh, saying no matter what your preferences are, we decided that by a set date, X percent of people must be driving a, an electric car. That, I mean, that's a plan. That is a centrally mandated plan. You know, would it be better if uh, maybe people were, we, we, people were driving hybrid cars uh, versus you know, you know, regular internal combustion engine cars. And, 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 and what if just a lot more people did that? Th- th- those might be better for some people. And some people, electric's not going to do very well if they need to drive pickup trucks in a cold class. No, 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 no. You're, you're missing the point. We need to have all electric cars by the year 2030. Uh, I don't think that has worked. And it's key to the vision I'm putting forward. And listen, I, I do get some ideas of, you know, of, of what things might look like in a better future, but it doesn't have to be my version. 
I think if you let people decide and if you have a fast growing, a fast growing economy full of opportunity, like we'll, we will figure it out. We will figure out like what Mm -hmm. is the best. I, I I don't want a department of the future in Washington, D.C. Okay, let's take a second to hear from our sponsor. Do you owe back taxes? Pandemic relief is over now. Along with hiring thousands of new agents and field officers, the IRS has kicked off 2024 by sending over 5 million pay-up letters to those who have unfiled tax returns or balances owed. Don't waive your rights and speak with the IRS on your own. They are not your friends. Tax Network USA, a trusted tax relief firm, has saved over $1 billion in back taxes for their client, and they can help you secure the best deal possible. Whether you owe $10,000 or $10 million, they can help you. Whether it's business or personal taxes, even if you have the means to pay or you're on a fixed income, they can help finally resolve your tax burdens once and for all. So call 1-800-245-6000 for a private free consultation or visit TNUSA.com slash remnant. That's TNUSA.com slash remnant. Okay, so let's take a second to hear from our sponsor, Aura Frames. Longtime listeners know I'm a big fan of Aura Frames. I've gotten them as gifts. I've given them as gifts. I sent my daughter back to college with one so she could look at many, many, many pictures of her cat and I guess her parents as well. So if you're looking for the perfect gift to celebrate the moms in your life, Aura Frames are a beautiful Wi-Fi connected digital picture frames that allow you to share and display unlimited photos. It's super easy to upload and share photos via the Aura app. And if you're giving an Aura as a gift, you can personalize the frame with preloaded photos and memories. I can attest, it is very easy to use, very intuitive. You don't have to read a lot of documentation. And it's just like you load the app and it says, what pictures do you want in your frame and you put them in your frame and you can change them and you can set the settings to whatever you want for how long the pictures stay there. It's pretty idiot proof from grandmothers to new mothers, aunts, and even the friends in your life. Every mom loves an aura frame named the best digital photo frame by Wirecutter and selected as one of Oprah's favorite things. Aura frames are guaranteed to bring joy to moms of all ages. Right now, Aura has a great deal for Mother's Day. Listeners can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's AuraFrames.com. A-U-R-A Frames.com. Use the promo code REMNANT at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. Let's pretend you are, let's do it this way. Let's start with Jim Pethokoukis gets to go back in time 60 years ago. And, and rather than people put you in an insane asylum. Uh, <laughs> I, like, I like to consider that as a perfectly plausible <laughs> scenario. <laughs> we won't discuss it, but it could, be, it, could be, it could have happened. Hi, I'm Jim Pethokoukis. <laughs> I'm from the future and I'm here to help. It is not necessarily say, well, let me get the president on the phone, you know. But let's assume you could you, yeah. you you bring notes from people and you have you have letters from people that you can prove you are really from the future. And you get to sit down with, you know, in the situation room with the president and leaders of Congress and policymakers. What are some of the things that you wish you could tell them to do that they did not do? I think I would tell them to think very carefully about that. They, I, I would tell them they should not take for granted that the past 25 years of rapid economic growth and seemingly 
some something new every day. Some something you know we're we're putting up a nuclear reactor. We're we you know we're 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 launching rockets. You know things people couldn't you know we're we're still like you know science fictional twenty five years earlier that they should not assume that that rate of progress will continue for the next 25 years or 50 years. And they should think very carefully about the kinds of decisions they're making, whether they will facilitate that progress or they will limit that progress. Uh, you know, as part of the research for the book, you know, I, I spent a lot of time looking at what they were, th- what people were thinking in the 1960s, you know, CEOs, uh, you know, people worked at, you know, think tanks, uh, sort of the, the hard science science fiction writers like Asimov and Clark, who were taken very seriously as public intellectuals uh, back then, mm-hmm. you know. So what did they what did they imagine the next twenty five years would look like? And they and they thought it would be a period of acceleration. That it wouldn't just be another sixties; it would be you know a sixties you know plus even faster. And in nineteen seventy, there was this book uh, by Alvin Toffler called Future Shock. That was entirely right. premised that growth would be so crazy fast that it was going to drive us all nuts and we wouldn't be able to handle it. That is not what we got. Instead, we've got we got a market slowdown, um, which I date you know, to 1973. And and at the time, people thought it was temporary. They thought oh, it must be the oil crisis. But then it sort of lingered on year after year. And, you know, economists still look at, you know, what happened. But certainly one one thing that happened is we began to regulate as if. Uh, it didn't matter that we would continue to have mm-hmm. rat, and so it didn't matter if we made it hard to build things. It didn't matter uh, if we uh, suddenly, you know, ended ended both the space age and the atomic age, basically around the around the same time. So that's I, I would tell them, your prediction is wrong. We are going to have a a multi generational slowdown, and now knowing that, what do you think we should do? How will you do something different? Obviously, one of the things you think you think they should have doubled down on was nuclear power. But um, what else? I mean, like, uh, what are some of the sort of in retrospect? Because it's always easier not to do something stupid at the time than to reverse a 50 year error of stupidity. I mean, it's like if we could just told people, look, ethanol is a bad idea. It would be that would be much easier than trying to peel it back now. Um, I feel like in 20 years, we're going to say the same thing about electric cars, because I think it's going to turn out that the damage of heavy metal mining and the carbon intensity of dealing with all these rare minerals and whatnot. um, I think it's a bit of a Ponzi scheme that that I'm not against electric vehicles. I'm just like, don't rush it until the technology works. You want you want flying electric cars. I know you're very worried about the microplastics issue. And a lot of those those might come from car tires, you know, you know, you know, uh, uh, on roads, that kind of particulate uh, matter. Well, so nuclear. So that's like, you know, so the classic is sort of nuclear power. Would we be talking about would climate change be an issue if we were running on 100 percent nuclear power, which also would have benefited from 50 years of research and advances and the kind of nuclear fusion breakthroughs that we're seeing now. And you have, uh, you know, you know, there are, you know, well-financed startups pursuing this. Uh, we, we would already be there, but you know, you know, there are other, there were other things happening back then. We, we, we basically killed the idea of having, you know, supersonic flight in this country. You know, the booms were too loud. Would the booms still be too loud after 50 years of working on that technology? Uh, probably not. Um, you know, I, I talk a lot about regulation, and that seems like something no one would be shocked uh, to hear about from a book called The Conservative Futurist. But 
you know, we were spending a ton of money during the space age on, uh, on, on R&D. And then when the space race was over and we won it, we stopped doing that. I'm not sure what the next Project Apollo would have been. I would have continued. I would have certainly would have continued uh, our space efforts. But maybe the next Project Apollo could have been, you know, pro, you know Project Nuclear Fusion. And we would already uh, have had it. One of my favorite kind of pro-optimism, pro-progress shows is For All Mankind from the from Ronald D. Moore, the creator of Ballastar Galactica, which kind of takes that that principle where the space race doesn't end and and and, it, and government continues to spend a lot on R&D so we have you know we have smartphones in 1982 nuclear fusion like in 1985 and the world isn't a utopia and this isn't a book about a utopia but you know you're able to solve a lot of solve a lot of problems and I think it's about having a a better world not a perfect world yeah my only problem with that well not my only problem but my biggest problem with that show and this is a pure sci-fi geek point not a you know, public policy point, you know, because it's basically a parallel universe story, right? Yeah. Like all history splits in the timeline and things go this way instead of that way and blah, 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 blah. The split is that the Russians get to the moon, get on the moon first. Right. And that freaks us out. And we're like, oh, it's on. (laughs) Right. um, Which I like. I like that stuff. But um, too many of the characters, like they still have like a Clinton presidency and an Obama president, like like in a universe where we have smartphones starting in 1982 and we have like fusion by like 1990, all the politics are going to be so disrupted. You're not going to have the same characters coming in, but they they do it so it can the verisimilitude of having like stock footage from the 90s, you know, of Al Gore makes it feel more right and it's entertaining, but it just it wouldn't be that. It's like well, I think I think in that show, <laughs> I think in that show, actually Reagan, I think becomes president in 1976. I think that's and, right. and eventually, yeah. uh, and, and eventually, I think one of the and and this to me makes sense that as he should have, yeah, well, yes, uh, and that the space race is so successful and it, and and it's this huge and we just double down to such a huge part of the budget and people love astronauts that eventually an astronaut uh, becomes president of the United States, which kind of maybe seems uh, you know it seems like that might happen, but yeah, I, I get your point, and um, and because the future is so awesome in this other universe it's a gay astronaut so that's that's what we really she, need is, uh, she's closeted when she is actually like, and that becomes a lot of uh, a lot of, te- uh, uh, of tension but she's a conservative texan too that's right that's right so you know the, the future is a wild is place a wild place um, Goldberg. okay so um now let's say the jimmy pethokoukis and i don't mean like the f- frozen severed head that's in some lab somewhere i mean the equivalent of you 60 or 70 years from now comes back to today and again manages to get a meeting what are some of the things that you think he would say to us about how to turn things back on or how to avert what may be coming down the pike well uh you know you mentioned the the frozen severed head which is i'm not sure if this was intentional because the uh the first conservative futurist I mentioned is Walt Disney. And of course, it was a, always a rumor that his head was cryogenically frozen because, uh, you know, he, you know, Tomorrowland and he had an Epcot Center was supposed to be a bubble city and, you know, a city of the future. And I was looking for models of conservative futurism of the uh, past. And I decided not to pick him 
uh, because I felt he was too much of a, a person of his time, you know, really believing in the power of planning. And uh, he was like a robber. He would have been kind of a Robert Moses type had he run, you know, this, you know, Epcot Center as a, as a city of the future in Florida. And uh, I instead focused on this guy, Herman Kahn, who is. A, a nuclear war theorist in the 60s. He was a partial inspiration for the mad scientist, you know, Dr. Strangelove in the film, Dr. Strangelove. And, uh, you know, just just a, 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 a real, you know, again, really painted as sort of this, you know, dark person from the 60s. Uh, that's not really kind of who he was. He was actually a super optimist. And by the 70s, he had become a very sunny futurist, Loved, loved what he called techno capitalism, and he, uh, you know, he, he he was a futurist, and he at the Hudson Institute, and they did a lot of scenario planning. But at heart, he really believed what was important, and this was sort of his message to the future: um, was that if we can just avoid a little bit of bad luck and don't make extraordinarily dumb decisions. That will be a pretty good baseline for society. Now, we can do a lot better than that. And he very much believed in the power of economic freedom and technology. And he thought that by now we would have mastered his word. We would have mastered uh, the solar system. And he fought this limits to growth stuff in the 70s. Uh, but that was sort of his his message uh, that, you know, let's you know don't make dumb decisions. And I fear that we've made. Too many really dumb decisions. I think abandoning nuclear power was a dumb decision. I think embracing regulation and not caring about whether it, uh, you know, it had a, an impact on progress, a really extraordinarily dumb decision. Uh, we've made enough good decisions that, we're, that there has been some progress. So let's just start making some better decisions. Let's have some faith in our power to do that. Uh, and uh, let's let's and if problems arise, listen, problems will arise and we can fix them and new technologies will create new problems and then we'll fix those and we'll keep moving forward. I think I hope uh, to a, a, a more prosperous, healthy future, not just in rich countries, but around the world. So uh, just so listeners know, because. Nothing from your description necessarily would explain why he was the inspiration for partial inspiration for Dr. Strangelove. His big gloom and doom thing was the uh, thinking the unthinkable, gaming out how to win a nuclear war. Um, and so a lot of that sort of hide in fallout shelters for generations game theory comes from all that. And, um, and, and Kubrick interviewed him extensively before he did uh, Dr. Strangelove. Yeah. But indeed, that exact, that sort and people, that's why people thought that he was a warrior of Armageddon. But even right. in that, the optimism came through because he thought you could fight and that you could win and that, listen, America might be in a shambles, but our, our can-do Yankee spirit would eventually emerge and we would rebuild. <laughs> so even during his dark period, a true optimist. And if and if if we didn't, maybe the bees or the border collies <laughs> would take over the planet and do a better job. Maybe the spaniels as well. Uh, no, the spaniels, <laughs> they're growing out. There's not a chance. Let's talk for a little bit about supply side progressivism. Is 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 this I think we talked about it a little bit last time you were on. I can't remember. I'm not sure. Time is a flat circle. Again, it gets it gets me back to this whole thing. Because like you keep talking about we've made bad decisions. And I think that's a problem with the language about how we talk about these things is because you are actually not arguing for a lot of collective we decisions. You're arguing for a, 
sort of a decision to allow others to make decisions, right? To try things, to experiment, to throw darts, you know, let a thousand flowers bloom of experimentation because that's how you increase the odds of, of one thing being a success. Sort of like what people think the laboratories of democracy means, even though Brandeis did not mean it by the way we use it. Um, but um, um, it seems to me that every time you get an ally on the sort of, there are a lot of people who take it much more literally and supply side progressivism, much like this long-termism stuff that we were talking about or the Gost plan or whatever. It's always, I want to be in charge. And that's sort of what I'm trying to get at is how do we get to a place where we as a society make a decision to let other stakeholders, technological stakeholders, entrepreneurs, consumers, whatever, make their own decisions and convince people that that's actually the best way forward. I, I like when, uh, you know, my and folks on the left start talking about making America more productive. That's great. I like when they, when they begin to look at how regulations make it hard to build you know, everything from, you know, housing and high productivity cities to building, you know, nuclear reactors or highways, any of that. That is fantastic. Um, I would love it if they would acknowledge that these rules haven't been around for a long time and they have shown they have showed no interest in changing them up until about 45 minutes ago. Um, I think that kind of, you know, I don't want a truth and reconciliation committee about regulation, uh, but it would be great if they would acknowledge that at some point, that it is it is a tremendous error that we are sitting here uh, having debate about how to use solar and wind and how, exactly how much economic damage it will, it will cause because we're going to have to, you know, slow down growth because we're not going to be able to power the kind of future uh, that I've uh, uh, that I've been laying out, or even power AI. I mean, a lot of people say we should back off the AI because it uses too much power. So there's there's not enough recognition of that. I'm also worried that there is still too much in that movement, which I I, I hope I wish I I know involves Ezra Klein. I'm not sure if you know all the progressive supply siders. You know, if you could probably fit them all into a car. But you've seen now with a, a, a new challenge, which is this challenge with, you know, AI and the, and the rushed regulated. And you're still seeing so many folks on the left treating it like it's like it's the new nuclear energy again. And that it needs to be heavily regulated, that we need to that we need to create a new agency, the AI agency, which will monitor all these large language models and approve them and run them through tests. And maybe eventually they'll be they'll be they'll be uh, you know, they'll be permitted out into the wild. Uh, if that is if that is how we're getting this progressive supply side movement dealing with new challenges, great. I'm glad they're pro nuclear. But now we have a new challenge, and it's the same old thing. It's the exact same old thing where they worry that there'll be that there'll be too much experimentation and there'll be open source models that anybody can use. How much better if only a few players were involved uh, that had good relationships with the new AI agency and their and their policy shops, you know, could, you know, could have dinner with, you know, regulators that that's really how it should work. So I'm I'm a little skeptical uh, about this, uh, about the new supply side progressive movements and its willingness to sort of cede the reins of control, you know, to entrepreneurs and market forces and competition. Because, listen, there's nothing I would fear more than just a few players with a close ties to the government 
having complete. Now, listen, I understand why they want regulation because they would they would benefit from that scenario. Why some of these companies are pushing for it. Uh, But again, I, I think there are tremendous downsides. And I'm so far disappointed that the new supply side progressives uh, so-called don't seem to be adopting a more, they, they, they don't want to treat AI as we did the internet, internet in the nineties, which is light regulation, uh-huh. let a thousand flower. We have no idea how this fast evolving technology is going to involve and we can solve problems as they happen. I would just a couple, uh, there are a couple things in there. I want to push back on a little bit, at least in the realm of uh, devil or Michael strain advocacy, six of one, half dozen, half dozen of the other. Um, uh, the, the internet for a lot of people, um, is a good example of how maybe we should have thought more about, we should think more about regulating at the, at the front end. Right. I mean, cause the boosterism about what the internet would mean and do for democracy, for the children, for everybody, uh, hasn't completely panned out the way the boosters said. And I remember, you know, Bill Clinton, he had this, you know, mocking thing where he was like, and, you know, China thinks they're going to be able to, con- you know, to, to, to censor the internet or regulate the internet. Good luck with that. <laughs> and it turns out that China's doing pretty good at that. Um, and if you told people part of the bargain with the internet, you know, in 1996 was ubiquitous porn in young kids' lives, uh, they might've said, well, you know, maybe we should set up some rules going in rather than wait to see the damage of it all. So I'm sure as you go on your multi-state lavish book tour, um, talking about this book, you're going to get a lot of people saying, well, wait a second, doesn't the internet prove the point the other way around? No, I, 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 people have, people have brought up that exact point. Um, If not for the internet and the ability to for scientists to easily collaborate, to get uh, to get hold easily of other research, to work on projects together, even if you're not uh, in the same place. I do not believe we would be on the verge of what I think is a very important technological breakthrough uh, in AI, or I think in fusion, in um, biotechnology, you know, CRISPR, or even with space, without the internet, I believe we would still be well behind achieving those. And as I said, will there be downsides? Yes. Um, Unfortunately, I think oftentimes it's easier right now to think about, oh, the downsides of the internet rather than what it has given us, which is, which is pretty much everything we talk, think about comes to us via the internet. Um, We'll, you know, we will see if this, how we would ask this, how people will answer this question if we are sitting here 10 years from now having solved, uh, you know, without us all living as we did in the 1940s, if we have solved climate change, if we have radical new treatments for cancer, because we are a more connected society. With that connection will come problems. And as we said earlier, you know, uh, Technology will always cause problems. And and many of these problems I'm not so worried about. Like the whole disinformation, uh, I think for most people who are certainly under the age of 30, they don't assume every video they see is like reality. 
I know my kids don't. They assume just the opposite. They assume anything they see on the internet has probably been, it's been faked. Uh, it's, it's a setup by an influencer. If they see some, you know, some, some, some scene captured on the street, they're like, ah, uh, you know, that was all set up. Uh, older people might indeed think that, oh, because it's video, it must be true. I, I just, I'm not a big, I understand what you're saying, I understand what you're saying about the sort of the child porn and porn issue and the, the ubiquitousness of that. Uh, but I think some of these other things like disinformation, I think are really going to be a sort of a fleeting issue as we get more people who've sort of spent their lives online, you know, get older and become more of us. Yeah. So I have a slightly different take on that in part because I just did this, I was just at this conference where they had a pretty great um, tutorial on some of this stuff for AI. And, you know, I'm a big, this is, I keep coming back to this thing about how these debates are always the same. It's just the, the scare terms are different and maybe the stakes are different and the specific technology is different, but it's. Well, supposedly the stakes now are human, are, are human existence. Cause that's, you know, that's the, it's going to kill. Yeah, us but all, that was, right? I mean, that was also the argument for the population bomb, for nuclear war, for global cooling, for now it's for climate change. Um, um, it's amazing how often human existence is on the line. You know, it's, 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 it's very comic booky. Like, like, Oh my God, every week, <laughs> all of humanity is <laughs> there's, in peril. There's a, there's a super villain technology. Yeah. And, um, and so one of the things I, I, I don't know about AI, like AI in terms of coming up with new medical compounds and protein folding and that I'm very excited about. And I think that's great stuff. And coming up with, as you brought up the last time you were on here about how, Maybe AI can come up with new light materials that can finally give us the space elevators we were promised. You know, I'm all down for that kind of stuff. But on the LLM stuff with social media and disinformation, I think that the, I'm, I'm coming to the position that the, the threat is both less and different than we've been led to believe insofar as it's, it's basically just the old garbage in, garbage out thing. You know, the chat GPT is a giant plagiarism machine. And a lot of these misinformation, truth seeker, whatever you call them, you know, services, basically, who, as, as the guy who was doing the presentation was saying, whoever controls the ground truths, right, whichever controls what, how these label, various labels are defined, gets to define what is and isn't misinformation. Um, it basically, chat GPT doesn't do original thinking. It does... And maybe it'll get to that place. But what it does is, is it gets better and better and better at refining what the sort of median, you know, uh, at the, or the mean of all writing on a certain subject is and spits it back at you. And, and so there's actually a really weird kind of small C conservative bias to it because it's going to tell you the right, what the right answer is based upon what the previous right answers everywhere were. And the, the Ezra Klein types, they're the ones who are controlling the definition of a lot of these terms that are being labeled misinformation or disinformation and all that kind of stuff. So I kind of see them, why they are freaking out so much about it, kind of I think is weird because they already, the group think that controls Silicon Valley. Like if you do a kind of an ideological Turing test for chat GPT, it turns out that it's left of center, mildly libertarian, which is pretty much what the average sort of decision maker in Silicon Valley already is. And it's reflecting their attitudes about what is right and wrong and what is a good answer or a bad answer and all that kind of stuff. And I worry 
doesn't mean I'm for super regulation of any of this stuff, but I worry that chat GPT and those kinds of things could end up being enormous conformity machines rather than breakthrough. Here's a new way of thinking about things different for the science stuff, but for the, the realm of language models, it is going to tell you basically what a left liberal, slightly libertarian dude who has checked things off with a uh, trial lawyer beforehand thinks is the right answer to everything. Tell me I'm wrong. Uh, I think if for a sort of, you know, a high school student or something uh, wanting to write a paper and saying, give me uh, give me five arguments, you know, uh, for an essay, give me five arguments about this topic. You know, uh, it, it's probably going to get something fairly, fairly bland. And that might that might have, you know, the kind of bias. Uh, but are, are those are those the kind of use cases that really that, that really interests me? Um, I mean, when I use it, I, you know, I will use highly specific prompts. I will sort of control the sources it uses for, for it to be. And, it, and when I ask it to not just sort of summarize things, but perhaps make connections between things that, that weren't super obvious to me. So I go into it sort of with a base of knowledge, understanding the subject well enough that I'm like, oh, uh, that's, you know, that's, you know, kind of like the typical answer it might give me. All right. That's kind of the, now let's go deeper. So I think, I think that's the case. I think I, when you were, when you were a high school student and you were signed an essay, uh, you know, maybe you looked at what was in the New York times or USA today. Uh, and you gave like the same sort of a kind of generic, I mean, you, I mean, the teachers probably got 20 essays that said basically the same thing. So no difference there. What this allows you to do is this, as you get those first answers back from chat GPT, and then of course it's helpful when you treat it like a human and you say like, Hey, great job. That's a really interesting, but could you maybe take the other side of the argument? Could you maybe, you know, dig a little deeper? Those seem like very obvious uh, very obvious answers. Is there, is, are there deeper, more, int- and it will do that. I find that to be true all the time where I'll, where I'll say, uh, let's say, I, if I, let's say I was interviewing uh, Jonah Goldberg. What are five things you might have me ask him? And it will give five super boring things. But then as you push it and keep pushing it, the answers will get better and more interesting. So I think part of it is how will most people, if they use it, what, what will they do? And is that the most important use case? To me, the most important use case is really how businesses use it, how scientists use it, how technologists use it. And uh, I understand that concern, uh, but I think it's really early days and the technology is sort of as bad it will, as it will ever be. It's sort of as boring as it will ever be. And I think it will be better down the line and give us more interesting, deeper, more, you know, thought, and I'm making air quotes here on the, on a podcast, thoughtful answers. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm more skeptical about both the upside and the downsides of it than a lot of people are, um, for in these use cases, right. I'm not talking about like, again, finding weird correlations in cancer rates that would have been really hard to look for, for human beings because of the, because it's just giant pattern recognition software. And that stuff is great. And I think there is a really non-trivial, even likely chance in the next five, 10 years, 
AI discovers something about how to make unobtainium or cold fusion or something <laughs> that is just friggin' awesome, right? I think that's real. Um, how many years I, do you want to delay that, right? I mean, yeah, I, no, that's right. I mean, like, so, um, you know, there's a there's a scene in uh, <clears throat> Star Trek where Dr. McCoy tells a story about how his parents died and then they discovered, like, the cure, like, the next year. Like, how many years do, are we willing to have more people die of uh, die of cancer or Alzheimer's? And or, or how much longer are we willing to leave our planet vulnerable to a uh, you know to a comet because we don't have a sophisticated enough ways of deflecting it? These are all real things, and I I, I understand that these downsides, but. To me, I mean, the name of the newsletter, not to be like, you know, overly push things here, but is is faster, please. And that's why uh, I mean, you say, please, the, the slow, I do say, please. So it's not a command <laughs> and control. We've done the we've done not just slower, please, but you know, you must go slower for 50 years. So I'm highly impatient with the notion of let's just keep let's just keep doing what we've been doing. We'll run the AI models through some spinoff of the FDA. And uh, oh, and by the way, uh, China's not going to do that. And hey, just I mean, just imagine if last November it had not been open AI financed by Microsoft with this chat GPT breakthrough. What if it had been Alibaba or Tencent? Uh, we would that is all we would be talking about right now, Jonah Goldberg. We would be talking about how we lost the AI race. They're going to get super AI first. What happened? That would be that not, you know, uh, government shutdowns or seal. that would be the number one that in this geopolitical contest, they have won a tremendous victory and we have lost Sputnik all over again. Thank God that didn't happen. Yeah. But OK, but here's the again, just a devil's advocate. Michael oh, Strain that's that's point. fine. Uh, sure, sure. Um, <laughs> part of the problem with your perspective, as it seems to me, is, again, making straight line projections about this stuff. Right. And in so far as. Uh, we just finished talking about For All Mankind that it turned out it was a huge boon to the United States into science and to the, as Francis Bacon would put it, the relief of man's estate that Russia beat us to that first major milestone of putting a man on the moon because then our reaction to it was so much greater, yeah. right? Mm -hmm. And um, I think that there are a lot of things in life that the, the, the shortest distance between two points kind of assumptions are wrong in that um, the competitive pressures between us and China may force us to do things that, that we would not have otherwise done. Cause again, necessity is the mother of invention. Yeah, and I think that's a tailwind to my entire scenario. The fact that we do have another ge big geopolitical competitor for sure. Yeah. And, and, and so anyway, it just, it's, it's, I'm, I'm more of a Calvin Coolidge kind of conservative in some ways. And one of my favorite lines from Coolidge was, if you see 10 problems rolling towards you, do nothing and nine of them will fall into a ditch before they reach you. And, um, um, and to me, that's sort of, that's, that's sort of a different approach to the laissez-faire that I think we both share, which is let a lot of people who are closest to problems worry about the problems. They're going to be better at solving them. And sometimes those the, the problems that they run into will bubble up to become policy problems and then we'll tackle them. The problem with both on the proactive and reactive side of thinking the policymakers are the first deciders rather than downstream deciders is commits you to things that maybe just aren't 
ripe yet, if that makes any sense. No, and, th- and it's, it's, it's that perspective, which I think informs the entire book, which is why I don't um, recommend uh, giant new regulatory agencies, why I don't recommend huge new spending programs on all sorts of specific problems. Uh, I advocate a lot more money just on basic science research that we should spend as we did. Now, there may be some very specific problems that, but I think they, that we that we should say that is that is a moonshot. That is something we should try to 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 target. I you know that's fine. But I think most things are not like that. Most things you 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 provide the resources for people to investigate, whether it's scientists and technologists, to solve the problems. This is not. I do not want a a ministry or a department of science or AI. But the thing is, we haven't taken that laissez-faire attitude. We've made it hard for people like that. To to solve problems, we've made it very hard. If you if you if you would like us to be able to, to take a plane from New York to uh, to Berlin in ninety in ninety minutes, if that is something you want to do, we have made it impossible for you to do that. So a more laissez faire approach in that regard would be a massive improvement. We are we have not been living through the era of Calvin Coolidge for the past fifty years. No, no, of course not. I, I agree. I my my only point was that. Because where, where I have great sympathy with you is, like, when you cannot control something, you cannot be blamed for things that go wrong, right? Like, if I have no power over stopping an asteroid hitting Earth, no one can point to me and say, this is your fault. But if I have the power to stop it, and I don't, then you can say it's my fault, right? And so when, you're, when you bring up this point about, like, the, the Dr. McCoy thing about finding a cure a few years later and all that kind of stuff... There's a certain aspect of justice delayed is justice denied here. If it really is in our power to accelerate the path of curing diseases, fixing climate change, right? I'm a geoengineering guy. Um, uh, um, And we don't do it. Then there's a certain amount of moral responsibility for not for not having done it. Right. There's a certain amount of. you know, by making it harder for us to grow out of and innovate out of our problems, the people who want to throw a wet blanket on everything share some moral culpability (laughs) for the way we're suffering from those problems. You know, imagine if you stopped the green, Norlau, what what was his name? Um, The the Green Revolution guy? Orlock. Orlock. Imagine if we stopped him because, oh, you know, the FDA needs to do another round on all this stuff. Every day you slowed him down, you're killing, I don't know, from starvation, 10,000 people a day, 5,000 people. I mean, some, some mind boggling number. And it would be nice if there were people, you know, Charles Murray always makes the point about the Apollo program that the, because it's, it contradicts so much of his views about government planning and government work. And his point is, is that it was a microcosm of a specific milieu of people who are dedicated to an enterprise that defied normal incentive structures and there was a sign on the wall that said waste anything but time and you can you can do a lot with that kind of ethos in a mission-driven kind of organization and we just don't have a lot of regulators who think that way we think we have a lot of people who think the flip side of that no i think there's a there's a lack of an utter lack of urgency again this isn't you know and and it's not a book stuck in the past complaining uh, we not listen. We have we have we've had 
you know, people calling for an AI. It's stuck in the future complaining. <laughs> future complaining. <laughs> We've had people calling for an AI pause. Uh, we we have we have already uh, the FAA, you know, delaying these the launch of uh, of these Starship rockets that Elon Musk is building, and because there were, you know the last one exploded, and I think there were like some like a few like blue shelled crabs were burnt or something. It's like these very ridiculous, you know, uh, you know, effects are enough to months and months slow down the next lot time. There is no sense of urgency. There's no sense that, you know, time is of the essence and, you know, maybe we'll never get that out of government regulators, but to the best we should. And if there are rules that give them more tools to slow things down, indeed, I write a lot about the national environmental protection act in the book. And like the first big court case, the judge said, finally, we are creating the tools to slow down material progress. Said it right there. and, and, And guess what? They were right. The judge called it because that's exactly what it's done. Um, I would have a lot of time left, but I, I just want to ask you, where are we on geothermal? Because it, it like I saw at a very young age, a crack in the world, this 1965 movie where they they crack the planet. And by trying to like, ta- you know, mine the Earth's core and get energy out of it or something like that. And it's always freaked me out. But like if that's and I'm and I've always been kind of freaked out about the the caldera, the North American caldera, whatever <laughs> that thing is. Right. Um, which is why, as anyone who knows my early career, I spent a lot of time arguing for space-based volcano lancing. Yes. Um, but um, you're kind of bullish on it, and if 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 you can convince me that it works, I'll, I'm I'm all in. I tell you, it it uh, you know I talk we, you know people talk about about nuclear, but really there's tremendous amount of innovation happening with this deep thermal and there's there's different there's different varieties you know do you do you heat water do you heat some other chemical how deep do you go how do you how do you drill that deep and it's certainly it's certainly a technology which probably needs some more r&d for the more sort of expansive versions but just as there's tons of startups which there weren't before on nuclear fusion. There are actually a lot of startups on deep geothermal. So I think that, like, to me, that's a pretty exciting technology right now. And you mentioned the uh, the Yellowstone caldera. You know, there, I, I do write about a plan to use the Yellowstone caldera to heat, the, you know, to provide energy for the entire country. And, I'm sh- and I, I've been assured by the person pushing that idea that will not cause it to explode. So... You know, I might want to run a couple extra tests on that one, but that that actually could like provide enough energy, geothermal energy for the entire country. So even without using the uh, super volcanoes, uh, I think there's enough progress happening that that's a real that's a real thing that we can begin to factor in how we're going to get you know lots of abundant, cheap, clean energy in the future. I don't again. I I don't want to delay that either. I mean, and people who hate fracking, guess what? They hate deep geothermal too. Yeah, so I've been meaning to ask you about this because, like, uh, I've been fascinated with, again, nothing new under the sun. A lot of this has to do with psychology stuff, right? So there are people legitimately and sincerely and to one extent or another rightly concerned about climate change. Fine. People rightly concerned about uh, the damage that coal and oil do, oil drilling do to the environment, right? And we can have an argument about cost benefits, risk rewards, all that kind of stuff. That's fine. But there's, it's a sincere, specific public policy position by people who I may disagree with, but it's a legitimate one. There is also this view out there that clean, safe, abundant energy, as you put it, would be a problem because really humans are the problem. That economic growth is the problem. 
you have every few years you get back to these these guys arguing about steady state economies, right? Um, where it's the climate change is a pretext for this deeper view that says material progress, qua material progress is just bad. And I'm just kind of curious, since you've been reading a lot of this stuff, I don't read this stuff nearly as much as I used to. Um, how much of it is the former and how much of it is the latter? How much of, you know, like I always tell people that the opposition to the oil industry predates the concern about climate change. It begins with the Santa Barbara oil spill in what, 68, when we were still talking about global cooling. There is this, and I used to think it was Marxist, but again, now I think it's something deeper. There's this idea that oil was just the lifeblood of capitalism. And we need to we need to restrain it because capitalism is bad in and of itself. And so I'm just kind of curious when you're trying to deal with people and engage these arguments, how much of the sort of their real problems with growth per se or humanity per se, or the real problem is actual the specific externalities of this specific public policy problem? I have been surprised because um, I, I sort of went into this thinking that uh, that the debate was really about, um, you know, the kinds of solutions, you know, how, you know, how I, you know, I would take people at face value value and they'd say nuclear is a bad solution because, uh, it's too costly. And, uh, it, you know, what are we gonna do with the waste? Those kinds of things. But, but the more I did it, the more I read, the more I talked to people, the stronger it, it appears to me is that sort of basic sort of anti-growth anti-capitalism, worry that we're going to use up the earth, uh, ideological objection. And that those people are going to be very challenged because they're going to have to make the case that both that climate change is an existential crisis, but no, these this set of solutions cannot be used. Even though other countries are, re, you know, other countries are re-embracing it, uh, I mean, the best example, look at Japan. They they had a tsunami, caused a nuclear reactor meltdown, shut down all the nuclear reactors. Oh, it turns out that, you know, that the casualties from higher energy costs and people, you know, not using their, their heaters in winter or air conditioners in summer have killed a lot more people than ever died there. And now Japan is re-embracing nuclear. Uh, that gives me a lot of hope that Fundamentally, these people with a and also what we learned during the pandemic is people don't like shortages. People don't like people don't like going to a supermarket where there's nothing on the shelf. So uh, I guess the short answer is that impulse is stronger than what I thought. Uh, but I think that I think that can be defeated. Yeah, that's I mean, I'm looking forward to cold fusion for a lot of reasons. Um, and I probably can't list as many as you can, but I think we share a lot of the reasons, but one of them is I really want to hear people finally take the mask off and say, no, unlimited, clean, renewable energy in of itself would be bad because humans are bad. And if you give them unlimited energy, they will, they'll just indulge themselves. Right. It's like my, my mother-in-law, when she was take her little kids in Alaska at the supermarket and the kids would ask, can we get that cereal or can we get that whatever? And my, my, my wife's mom would say, no, you'll just eat it. <laughs> right. <laughs> There's this attitude of like, if you actually give human beings unlimited potential to do, because that's what energy really is, right. Is the potential to, to, to do almost anything. Um, 
And they're just people who are, are misanthropes about this stuff. And they think humans will do bad things. And I think you can make such an unbelievably hopeful message about the way you could clean up the environment, right? You could have gazillions of plastic scooping drones in the ocean that just go out and clean the muck out, right? You know, there are all sorts of things you could do to rewild the planet, which I'm very sympathetic to some of that stuff. But you need the technology, you need the energy to do it. And there are people who think, no, no, they want to, they just want, they think the wet blanket is the only approach. And not only do they think we should not live this lifestyle, but then the message is they're saying is people who currently live in deep poverty, they'll say that the capitalists are sell, selling you a, a false bill of sale. You'll never, you'll never live like them. Don't be a capitalist. I mean, what a message. And I think that's a losing message is, is to tell people you can't live like people in the West do. The, my message is that should be a goal that everybody should live. I have the opportunity to live as well uh, as anybody else. I mean, who, I mean, who's in that scenario, who's actually concerned about the poor? Jim Pethokoukas, senior fellow and the DeWitt Wallace chair at the American Enterprise Institute. He is the author of The Conservative Futurist, How to Create the Sci-Fi World We Were Promised. We didn't talk about nearly enough sci-fi, but there'll be opportunities down the road for that. Uh, Jim, thanks for coming on The Remnant. Jonah, it was wonderful. Thanks so much for having me on. Okay, Jimmy P has left the studio. Um, for those of you who didn't get that very oblique, weird, probably not very funny uh, thing I was doing there where I said a devil's advocate or a Michael Strain av- advocate, six of one, half dozen of the other. Um, uh, Strain and Pethokoukas have this very weird, almost sibling rivalry thing at AEI, and they give each other grief, but they're very good friends. Um, and I tried to get Strain on for two weeks in a row, and he just kept saying no to me, so I told him he's dead to me now. Um, and, uh, so, uh, I just figured I'd explain a little of that inside baseball. Um, I really do recommend the book. You should check it out. It's, it's, um, we, I wish we had talked more about the sci-fi stuff, but he's got a whole crazy, you know, this is, I think today is pub date or yesterday was pub date. So he's got a crazy, uh, media tour schedule. Um, and, uh, um, but it is kind of remarkable how few and far between optimistic example examples of optimistic sci-fi are, um, which was not the case for a very long time. You know, it used to be, I'm not saying that all sci-fi was optimistic. Um, obviously Star Trek, the original Star Trek was, um, some of the spinoffs were a little darker than others, but you know, still very optimistic. Um, and, and now it's just sort of assumed that you know, real sci- sci-fi has to be dystopian in some way. Um, even as he was talking about with the peripheral, like the only way you get the science to pop is after 80% of humanity dies. Um, and I don't think it necessarily has to be like that. I certainly don't think fiction has to be like that. Um, but there you are. And I think that's sort of a reflection, a little bit of the apocalyptic age that we're in. Um, but there'll be plenty of time to talk about that more. Um, and, uh, as I think I've told people, I got some travel stuff coming up in October, so we're going to try to put stuff in the can. Um, but, uh, um, I want to thank Chris Starwalt for subbing for me. Um, I cannot wait. I'm actually very pissed that he got Mike Duncan, uh, cause I really wanted to have Mike Duncan back on to talk to him. And now I got to wait a little while before I have him on again and I got to listen to it and all that. Um, but 
want to thank Chris Darwalt for subbing for me yesterday. And, um, and there'll be, a there'll be plenty of more punditry from me, um, from others at the dispatch about the Kevin McCarthy, uh, leadership, uh, speaker, brouhaha, Holly Tacker mess, um, did a big chunk of it on dispatch live this week, which you can find, um, if you're a subscriber, um, and of course, the weekly dispatch podcast, by the time this comes out, that will also probably pretty much come out. So uh, we'll talk about it there and I'll do uh, I'll have some thoughts in the solo remnant as well, I'm sure. So with that, uh, that's really all I got for right now. Um, thanks. And I'll see you next time. No, you won't. This is a podcast. 